The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's a good thing if we have another major power willing to invest resources in maintaining stability in the Middle East if our priority is stability in the Middle East so we can focus on problems elsewhere, including with that other major power, perhaps, right? It becomes a problem if you end up seeing superpower competition and that starts breeding conflict, which we saw in certain corners of the world during the Cold War. Other parts of the world were very stable during the Cold War. Um, and it kind of is requires this management and, and consistent focusing. How do we think about where our shared interests are? And I actually think in the Middle East, China and the United States have a lot of shared interests. Not all of them. There's going to be spots of competition and conflict. Um, but pretending like it's all a zero-sum game is a really problematic way to think of it. I'm Heyman Han, Associate Editor at Lawfare. This is the Lawfare Podcast, April 13th, 2023. A few weeks ago, China made headlines for brokering a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to thaw diplomatic relations after seven years of cutting ties and even more years of tense relations. Since then, we've already begun to see some downstream effects of this deal, with significant movement on the war in Yemen and the reopening of Iran's embassy in Saudi Arabia. This is a story with two major strands, one about the potential effects of a successful normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and another about how China, and not the US, seems to have made it happen. To understand what all of this might mean for the region, I talked to Lawfare Senior Editor Scott Anderson and CNAS's Middle East Security Program Director Jonathan Lord about the contours of the deal, China's involvement in the process, and what to look out for as this deal ripens. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 13th, The Saudi Around Deal, featuring China. Well, I'd like to start by getting everyone on the same page as to exactly what happened between Iran and Saudi Arabia over these past few weeks. Obviously, in um, in March, what made headlines was the um, agreement that they signed, this joint agreement. What does this really mean, Scott? Is it as far as reproachment or is it just normalization? Can you place this in the context of what's happening between the two countries? Sure. You know, what we saw this past couple of weeks is really the restoration of a status quo that existed up to about 2016, up until 2016. Uh, in 2016, we saw a, a kind of protest that turned violent outside of the Saudi embassy in Iran that uh, was a reaction to Saudi execution of 
certain figures associated with Shia movements in Saudi Arabia, among other complaints between the, in the bilateral relationship. That led them to sever diplomatic relations, essentially cease operating embassies in each other's countries. There are different shades of severing diplomatic relations. You can not send ambassadors. You can close your embassies. You can do what they appear to do here, which is had to close an embassy for security reasons and then not reopen it. Um, I believe the Iranian, I don't know, I think there was an Iranian ambassador in Saudi Arabia. I'm trying to think prior to this, but I haven't had one for a while. I cannot remember if there was in 2016 or not. But the key point being they've now agreed that they're going to exchange ambassadors again, which is often considered sort of normalizing diplomatic relations. The diplomatic relations is is kind of like the third tier of uh, relationships that we think of in the international law context. Mm-hmm. You have the recognition of one country of another that say, well, we recognize you as a country. Okay. But you, if you recognize a country, that doesn't mean you recognize the government. Then you recognize the government saying, oh, we recognize you as the government of this country. So you can speak for this country. Okay. They never really disputed that. That was a big issue, actually, a problem for Iran until uh, throughout the part of the 1980s into the early 1990s in some areas. But between the two of them wasn't an issue for the last couple of decades. Instead, it's that third tier to say, we recognize you as a government and we're going to ch- exchange ambassadors, exchange embassies, and embrace each other's ability to do the conventional methods of diplomatic engagement. And that restoration is really what's happening here. It's a notable step. I don't want to downplay it entirely. Um, it, it is a important to have those sorts of dynamics and those sorts of engagements because that's the way statecraft is executed. When you are, you know, have ambassadors and diplomats in place, actually able to engage with each other, that is what forms bilateral relationships. It can be a hugely important avenue of communication. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily have substantive content. It doesn't always necessarily imply anything more than well, we're going to talk to each other. Very hostile countries have fully normal diplomatic relations. Here it is paired a little bit with we're going to have flights between each other's countries, a couple of other ties that suggest a little bit more normalized, maybe broader political economic relationship. But I think, although Jonathan, feel free to step in and correct me, relatively small fry so far. The restoration of diplomatic relations, significant, notable. But again, its substantive content is still not necessarily that loaded. What this all means in terms of changes in policy, we still have to wait to see. Right. So in context of kind of going back to status quo, as it were, is, is kind of what seems like you're saying. Jonathan, maybe could you give us a bit of an overview as quickly as it is possible to do of Saudi Arabia and Iran and why it might be interesting or notable that they are actually coming back to some sort of diplomatic relationship and why it would be of interest for them to do so? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Um, there has been uh, ongoing competition uh, between Iran and Saudi for an incredibly long time, well before even the re- revolution uh, in 1979. I think the geopolitical tectonic plates under the region have often put these two nations you know, sort of into opposing positions of competing. This has reached more of a head in more recent years once President Trump decided to leave the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal. Iran began the process of uh, working to slowly sort of tick up both uh, its nuclear activities and slowly sort of walk away from the deal, while at the same time engaging uh, in other regional activities that sort of brought us into a cycle of escalation uh, that then involved many of our partners in the region as well. And so uh, we saw this a lot in 2019, where Iranian proxies 
uh, were engaging throughout the region, but we saw activity in Yemen from the Houthis, who aren't really a proxy of Iran, but certainly a partner, you know, launching attacks uh, against Saudi Arabia, against uh, UAE. We saw, of course, in 2019, the attack uh, at the port of Fujairah against UAE. And then, of course, there was uh, the attack uh, against the Saudi Aramco facilities at uh, Upcake and Quraysh, which, you know, took a massive amount of the world's oil production supply uh, offline for a short while. So these are the types of things uh, that Iran would do to the partners, uh, in addition to its you know, maritime activities of seizing ships in commercially sensitive and important waterways, its you know, d- development of ballistic missiles. You know, it's, you know, I think it might have been Jim Mattis when he was Secretary of Defense used to talk about the, the five pillars of the Iranian threat. And mm. they were cyber activities, their maritime activities, their support to proxies and terrorists, their ballistic missile development, and of course, the nuclear program. And so in this period, uh, we saw the Iranians firing on all cylinders and, and really activating all aspects of that. And of course, you know, we, uh, the United States uh, attacked Qasem Soleimani, and things got really actually quite quite violent there for a minute between the, the U.S. Uh, and the Iranians. And the Saudis and other Gulf partners found themselves caught in the middle of this uh, and otherwise didn't want to be there uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, it had reached somewhat of a head. And so about two years ago, we started to see uh, the beginnings of this rapprochement. Um, Baghdad hosted talks for uh, Tehran and, and, and Riyadh and so they continued in Oman. Uh, and so it wasn't all that much of a surprise to see something announced, perhaps uh, the inclusion of China here at the end was a, you know, a, a bit of something else and a bit of messaging. But the Chinese, you know, played a role here that other Western powers probably couldn't have uh, because of the situation with Iran. Whereas, you know, China uh, is a major trading partner of Iran and a, you know, major perhaps the number one consumer of Saudi oil. Uh, they had a, a natural role to play in inserting themselves to restore some degree of geopolitical calm in the region. And of course, you know, as Scott says, uh, it remains to be seen just how much calm this this deal buys. You know, the, the Saudis, again, once the embassies are reopened, will have restored relations to a level that is equal to, I think, three U.S. non-NATO major allies on the peninsula. So, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, clutching of pearls and, you know, gnashing of teeth and uh, clutching, you know, wringing of hands. But ultimately, um, this really does, in fact, just restore communication between the Saudis and Iran. Mm-hmm. It's basically equal to, to what is normal uh, between uh, most countries in the world. Right. And I mean, you touched on this China element, which I want to get to now, um, this kind of long progression where you kind of said that China, maybe towards the end, got really involved. This has been reported on as like a diplomatic win for China, of course, and a lot of commentators think it's an inflection point between perhaps U.S. having more involvement in the region and China maybe replacing that. So to what extent do you think that's true, especially in context of this picture you've painted for us just now of maybe it being more of a a last minute thing and again, mostly technical at this point, what they're doing in terms of restoration of yeah, I think this was somewhat of a, um, a, a political target of opportunity for everyone involved. I think, you know, I'm not closely tracking all of their movements, but Ali Shamkani, who is the secretary of Iran's um, Supreme National Security Council, really showed up in Beijing a, a week before, you know, the deal was announced. And 
uh, again, there was you know at least 24 months of preparation that took place you know across multiple countries to get there. So I got the sense that you know Beijing hosting this was almost sort of a a last minute good idea that would otherwise provide everyone a little bit of something that doesn't really mean much qualitatively in terms of the deal, um, but in terms of the messaging. You know, China did do a bit of a public relations tour demonstrating how they are a world superpower who can bring peace and diplomacy and can convene, uh, you know, enemy states and how they're a force for stability and good in the world. Iran, you know, obviously, uh, you know, relies heavily on China. And I think to a degree, there was an opportunity here for Saudi Arabia to demonstrate that while, of course, it continues to rely largely on U.S. military posture and presence uh, and security assistance, it can look elsewhere for support in the world. Uh, and, you know, I think all, all good policies tell a story. You know, there has to be a degree of narrative. And I think um, this may not be the main story, but I think it's a helpful, you know, compelling narrative for, for the actors here to, to play on for, for each of their benefits for various reasons. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think maybe it's worth – one angle I would, I would pull out of this, this I think is a useful way to think about it, is that in people who have framed this as a big win for China, there's kind of two subsets of that. And one I think is actually right and one I think is wrong. The one camp says this is a big win for China because China made this happen. China facilitated. It's a sign of China's power to achieve political outcomes in the region. That I think is a much harder sell for the reasons really Jonathan, I think, really ably laid out, which is that this is an outcome that has been in process for many years with backing from a lot of different regional actors and including from the United States. I mean, the, the kind of process kind of chaired by Prime Minister Khatami of Iraq, no longer in office, but at the time was really a U.S.-backed process, kind of at a distance, kind of quietly, but not super subtly. And I think that's been true of a lot of these sorts of steps. Like this idea of a rapprochement was something that Jake Sullivan and Daniel Benaim, who's now a DAS at the State Department, they wrote about from foreign affairs before the election in 2000, I think. I can't remember exactly when, 2019. It's an idea that's been out there for a while. And so it's something people have been working towards. Mm -hmm. And it's something, it's a step that's not clear what China did, if anything, to change the calculus. The one thing China might have done is to provide more effective guarantor of some sort of consequence if Iran were to renege, right? Mm -hmm. Because the United States is a little maxed out to some extent in terms of sanctions. There are steps it could do, but it already hits Iran very hard. Um, I kind of suspect that China has a little bit maybe more leverage they could do in small ways to correct small infractions on Iran. But also, they didn't really agree to that much. So it's not clear what that would be. You know, if Iran failed to secure the new Saudi embassy, right? You saw another riot match under their territory. That would be a big issue in China. Maybe it would feel compelled to get involved because they put their name on this deal. But, you know, it's it's not a real kind of Chinese power. I think it's right that it's a win for China because, man, China, I think, kind of made out like a bandit in this one. Because this is an outcome that a lot of progress has been made towards. And the way I see it, I'd be curious, Jonathan, if you agree with this. I really see this more than anything as Saudi Arabia seeing a moment saying, all right, we're willing to do this. We're going to take this step. But we don't want to give the Biden administration that we win. We want to give somebody else the win. And there, I think China played a very convenient role. And in my mind, I think that's actually a, a common theme. We're seeing a lot of Saudi moves in the last six months, particularly, where they're much more resistant to look like they are going along with the U.S. They want to demonstrate independence, even if they're moving in a policy direction that in a lot of ways the United States has been pushing for in different degrees. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that's certainly right. It's also unclear to me, based off of where the U.S. is in its own 
you know, diplomacy and relations to Iran, what, what the U.S. role really could have been. I mean, certainly, um, we're, <laughs> we're a player in that we can, uh, increase sanctions, we can remove sanctions, we can threaten, uh, but in terms of having really trust measures where we can convene those two partners, that doesn't really work. Uh, so I think to a large extent, you know, China, you know, made sense from, from that perspective. You know, I, I think it's interesting because I, I don't want to, I'm going to be careful how I say this because, I think the Abraham Accords are, are, are really quite a big deal. But I do see somewhat of a corollary here where a lot of the rapprochement and the movement of interests behind the Abraham Accords had been taking place for years. And very quietly, uh, a lot of those signatories had been talking and preparing for some sort of normalization for a long time. And so the U.S. entry into that was relatively late. Uh, but of course, there was a lot of juice that the U.S. could could put into the deal by holding a signing ceremony on the White House lawn about uh, potentially sweetening the deal for certain partners by you know getting closer and 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 we would otherwise become more available to them as as partners in you know security assistance and so there there, there were you know natural ways in which we could uh, we probably accelerated its closure but. We were we were similarly late to it, and, and in some degrees important um, for you know providing an imprimatur on on the deal, as opposed to changing anything uh, on the ground that wasn't already happening. And I think that's really true here uh, when we talk about China in the context of whether or not it negotiated anything between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that that's all very fair. Want to take this from maybe China's perspective, though, maybe if if we think about it from them kind of watching and maybe thinking about when to insert at the right moment and also because of their kind of long term desire, maybe to want to present themselves as a different force power, even in the region. I thought it was really interesting that um, Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said this about the um, the agreement, the colonial hegemonic tactics of stirring up contradictions, creating estrangement and division should be rejected by the people all over the world. So obviously, this is something that China says a lot um, and has trying to message. But given this at the end swooping in, does this not actually suggest something important about China's ability to bring this to the finish line? You said a number of times that, um, Jonathan, you said that the U.S. wouldn't have maybe been able to do this. So is there some truth to what she's saying here? I think time will tell. Uh, I think, you know, Ch China seemingly pretty new to this role on a global stage. The U.S. has been doing this kind of thing for the greater part of the 20th century. They may, may, may be buying risks that they're not necessarily aware of. I mean, you know, t to Scott's point, uh, what actually has been agreed to and what has been implemented uh, right now, they're, they're in the process. Technical teams have been exchanged to reopen the embassies. But, you know, there was a lot of chatter uh, about there being much larger sort of more ephemeral agreements about non-interference in, non, non in each other's countries. And it was talked about publicly. And again, we don't know um, whether this is something that can really be implemented or how sustainable, sustainable it is. But uh, the closure of Iran International, which is a 
uh, a, a major news outlet that is purported to be backed by the Saudis that's very virulently against the Iranian regime. Uh, and then, of course, uh, a discussion about Iran ceasing uh, the smuggling of weapons and material lethal-laden support to the Houthis in Yemen. You know, these are these are all nice things, but uh, ultimately, uh, it encumbers a lot of work, uh, and this could all go sideways potentially. And then, is China on the hook for having negotiated a failed deal or otherwise been unable to be the the guarantor that you know it it claims it can be? Uh, so, you know, we'll have to see. In fact, uh, what what exactly they've signed on to. But uh, this really is only the beginning. And, you know, I, I keep referring to other agreements, but um, the the brilliance and perhaps like the flaw of like the Oslo Accords was that um, so many of the intractable, intractable, really difficult problems were all sort of punted, you know, to be determined later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get the sense that in this deal, uh, there's a lot of kumbaya, but not necessarily uh, a lot of agreement and process on, on, on solving some of those more difficult elements that are that are really at play that need to get solved for otherwise to, to be effective rapprochement between these countries. Uh, I agree, 100% agree with that. And more fundamentally, well, A, I think it's a really interesting Chinese statement because China could have said that exact same thing in the 70s and the 80s when it was first really trying to engage the region. And in fact, it did. Uh, you look at very similar statements, the narrative of the post shared post-colonial experience, um, that emphasis on that point is core to China's role in the non-aligned movement, which is something that's real still fundamental to their foreign policy and their global espoused worldview. Very hard to reconcile with what's happening in Ukraine and their backing <laughs> of Russia. So set that to the side for the moment. Okay. But their their stated rhetoric, their stated positions, it's a very consistent theme. Yeah. Like one of the most consistent foreign policies probably of just about any country in the world. Right. Really hard to reconcile that with what's actually happening here. I mean, one of the biggest drivers for a stronger uh, line being drawn for the last 15 years in the region on Iran has been Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the one who led the efforts to intervene in Yemen in 2015, right? You know, Saudi Arabia has been a big driver of this on a lot of different fronts. And so the idea that this has been a colonial imposition and that, in fact, this is a kumbaya moment that is arising because of the removal of that colonial position is a very convenient rhetorical point hmm. for China. It's one that might make it easier to swallow for perhaps some Saudi audiences, some Iranian audiences, a lot of people around the world who have often rightly founded reservations about Western imperialism or what people call Western imperialism. But it doesn't really correlate what was happening here. This is a conflict driven in large part by a Saudi reaction to some very legitimate security threats because Iran's also very bad behavior. So, you know, I the idea that there's a Western-imposed division, what, you know, the United States has very strong views on particularly Iran, but Saudi Arabia, I think, has always been a driver towards even more extreme position, at least the last decade or two. And I, I, I think it's hard to reconcile that sort of statement with that reality. I would like to associate myself with Scott's comments. Uh, I would also add to them <laughs> a little bit in the sense that you kind of have to look at the whole chessboard right now. And if we take a look at this from the Saudi perspective, uh, and recently I've, I've released a report looking at Iran's nuclear program in ways that uh, U.S. and the West and others could potentially disincentivize it and uh, had a discussion with, with some of the participants and the exercises associated with that project. But if you keep in mind that Iran's capacity as a national power right now is heavily, heavily reduced by the fact that it is under a crippling sanctions regime. From a power dynamic, this might actually be a very opportune time for the Saudis to engage with them uh, from a position of strength by comparison. And, you know, it's been interesting for me to look at how the U.S., Europe, Israel, potentially Gulf states 
all look at this problem and then prioritize an element of it uh, a little bit differently. So it was a, a colleague of mine who, who, in the context of one of our discussions, said, you know, for for Saudi Arabia, um, the nuclear threat is is not really the number one priority. It's all of the regional power that uh, Iran can bring to bear. And so from their perspective, keeping Iran under sanctions, whereas they're otherwise throttled in their national capacity to create arms uh, and so havoc in the region uh, remains constrained uh, is their number one priority. But of course, if you talk to others in Washington or uh, even Israel, uh, finding some way to stop their nuclear process uh, is, is the number one thing. And of course, where we've been uh, leaning, you know, our modality for that has been the JCPOA. It's been rapprochement. It's been diplomacy. Uh, others, I think, have been a little bit more ambivalent about that, obviously. But the region doesn't see the nuclear program as the number one threat. They see the Iranian threat more holistically. So if they could find a way to continue to push this process forward, whereby Iran continues to be throttled by sanctions, uh, I think they're more comfortable in that world. Uh, than a world in which uh, we might reach some sort of accord with Iran on the future of its nuclear program, but then otherwise unleash it by removing all these sanctions. And that's, that's a worse world for the Saudis and others in the region. Yeah, I, I on this wanted to um, touch on, I guess, what the reaction you think has been from uh, the rest of the Middle East on this and what interest they might have in um, facilitating or maybe hoping for the opposite of normalization to happen? And what what are metrics of, quote unquote, success when it comes to different perspectives and key players in the Middle East on this particular normalization? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It, you know, I was in Tel Aviv. And again, I don't know what time it was, you know, here in the West, but it was it was it was a Thursday evening when it was reported in the Wall Street Journal that Saudi Arabia was seeking massive security guarantees from the West and possibly its own nuclear program in exchange for normalization with Israel. And that was a big, big deal until the following morning when it was announced that, <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and China were doing this joint trilateral deal themselves. And you would get this sense of whiplash. It was like, well, well, well where's Saudi Arabia? I mean, what are they doing? But the truth is, and, and this is actually a, a behavior we noticed in our exercise looking at the region and the nuclear program is that these things actually are not necessarily in, in uh, opposition to each other and are really sort of reflective of longstanding policy in Saudi Arabia where there's, there's a degree of two-tracking going on where engaging uh, both politically and economically with Iran is a good idea because it reduces tensions, um, it reduces the risk of provocations, while at the same time they're going to work uh, very hard to build their own domestic military capacity and capability uh, to neutralize the very same threats that Iran and its proxies and others pose. Uh, and so they may not couch it as that. They, you know, may talk about ensuring the safety and sovereignty of, you know, Saudi citizens, just like the Emiratis do. No one wants to point a finger at the threat that Iran poses. No one, no one ever wants to provoke a crazy neighbor. But at the same time, uh, they'll go over to that neighbor's house with a gift basket and, you know, put on appearances and do all that they must do to, you know, keep things on an even keel while arming themselves in case the crazy neighbor, you know, has a, an event one Saturday night and gets crazy, you know. So uh, both things can be true at once. 
so I think we're, we're actually seeing that play out in, in, in real life here where there's no question in my mind that the Saudis don't see these things in opposition. They will pursue a better, more stable accord with Iran while working with the U.S., uh, other partners, uh, and potentially one day Israel to strengthen their own military capabilities. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So then what what is the ideal U.S. role in that process look like moving forward? Is this a crowded table? Should the U.S. just let China maybe continue? Or, I mean, from both uh, maybe U.S. perspective, maybe what's the right answer to that, but also just from a general more world peace perspective, is there an answer to that that's different from maybe what the U.S. might want to be doing? Well, let me address the U.S. piece of it first. Um, let me take a moment and put on my U.S. policy maker hat and say I would approach this from the perspective of ruthlessly pursuing U.S. national security objectives. Let's do that first because that's fun. Um, <laughs> I would take a look at the national defense strategy. And if you flip to around page 42, it finally gets to the Middle East. And while the global strategy is focused on building capacity and capability to uh, deter Chinese expansionism uh, in the Indo-Pacific and obviously to neutralize the acute threat of Russia in Europe, there is some words about buying down the risk of instability in the Middle East by working closely with partners to build up their capabilities and create shared capabilities in between them. I think that could otherwise backfill uh, U.S. military posture and capability that's simply going to be needed either elsewhere in the world or those dollars and people are going to be needed elsewhere to, to build the future capabilities for, for global threats. So, you know, there are talk of integrated air and missile defense systems, maritime domain awareness between multiple partners. The challenge of that is, is that while, again, in ruthless pursuit of national security interest, that means the U.S. should be doing everything it can to sell weapons and advanced technology and rebuild relationships so that central command can be the convener of all these partners against shared threats, named or unnamed. You know, politics in Washington gets in the way. And obviously, there is another debate about how much we should be doing with these autocratic regimes uh, that regularly engage in you know, human rights abuses, that chop up journalists, that, you know, do things that are otherwise uh, not necessarily in, in the U.S. national interest. And so we sort of have a robust strategy and then sort of half of a plan for implementation. But I feel like that's almost always the case. And that's kind of where we are today, where at the same time, we can know from this ruthless national security objective that it makes sense uh, for MBS to be close to us, but at the same time, then see Congress gnash its teeth as it has done perennially for at least five or six years 
about continuing to sell these partners weapons. And so the partners get that and they're not unaware. And so they're hedging and they're seeking other sources. And for our purposes, it's, it, it's almost the worst of two worlds because they have priced in our departure from the region, this narrative. Um, and so they're, they're looking elsewhere. But in fact, we do continue to have robust military posture and presence in the region at great cost. So we're not gaining the influence of that presence. We've sort of forgotten. And yet we're also, uh, they're expending the cost, both in, you know, service members who, who are deployed there. Uh, and then, of course, you know, continuing the posture and presence, that's the opportunity cost for what we want to be doing uh, to get after China and Russia. Uh, so that's a, that, that's a real challenge. So I would argue that it would probably be best, as is often the case, uh, for our political leaders to get on the same page as our policymakers, such that we could all be moving out in one direction that's otherwise clear and, and more coherent uh, to ourselves, uh, but certainly the partners and also our adversaries. What I would also just add to that is, you know, I think there is a narrative here where kind of different sides, in some ways two very different camps, um, have really embraced a zero-sum way of framing these developments that I think is a problem, right? On the one hand, you have the kind of highly restraint-oriented crowd that is eager to highlight a case that they think demonstrates problems with the U.S. you know, imperial presence, as they may frame it, uh, in the region and say, well, these are states reacting against that. China is gaining on us precisely because the United States is overreached. And then you have people kind of on a much more interventionist, strong military, more, you know, conventional by some accounts, pro, you know, strong military presence in the region saying, we are losing out to China. This is zero sum be- precisely because we're beginning to back away from the Middle East. And that's a problem. And we can't afford – both of them are essentially framing it as losing to China. I don't think it is necessarily a zero-sum game. I think that's a problematic way to think of it. It's a very natural way people tend to write op-eds, but it is a really problematic way to think of it. It's a good thing if we have another major power willing to invest resources in maintaining stability in the Middle East if our priority is stability in the Middle East so we can focus on problems elsewhere including with that other major power, perhaps, right? It becomes a problem if you end up seeing superpower competition and that starts breeding conflict, which we saw in certain corners of the world during the Cold War. Other parts of the world were very stable during the Cold War. Um, and it kind of is requires this management and, and consistent focus saying, how do we think about where our shared interests are? And I actually think in the Middle East, China and the United States have a lot of shared interests. Not all of them. There's going to be spots of competition and conflict. Um, But pretending like it's all a zero-sum game is a really problematic way to think of it. So for the United States, I think that means that their interests probably lie towards, you know, the international community, if you think the international community likes stability in the Middle East, which is, you know, accepting China's help and saying it's a good thing China's working on this, which is more or less the line I think we've gotten out of the Biden administration. There's going to be other times where they say, well, look, China, you shouldn't be working with Saudi Arabia on, you know, violating human rights issues or helping them cover up for uh, repression of the media or other things like that that might also come out of this relationship. But at this stage, this seems like a step that's in line with U.S. policy interests, regional security interests, and accepting that China might have a valid and useful role to play in that, I don't think is contrary to U.S. interests. Um, right. And you know, too much of the commentary, it pretends otherwise. Right. I, I think that's that, that's true in you know one regard. I think in another regard, our foreign policy presence in the Middle East has been largely through the military toolkit. Uh, it is through our military presence, which is designed to assure these partners, uh, and then of the sale of our military kit and hardware. Uh, and that's really been our currency and our tool of influence. 
And China has really engaged on a different level. Sure, they sell things uh, in the military space, but it has been, you know, infrastructure investment. It has been capital investment. Uh, you know, the introduction of, of telecom and these other massive projects into the region uh, that the U.S. really doesn't have a direct answer for because we don't have a means of directing American companies to just go forth and invest, right, like the Chinese can. Like they can direct economic expansion outward. And so we're sort of operating at these two levels. But where it becomes perhaps a little tricky for U.S. interests is that many of these systems that are ending up all over the region do threaten U.S. tech. There, there are backdoors uh, that are otherwise designed to collect and steal data uh, such that I'm not worried about there being direct competition necessarily for the U.S. and China. What I'm largely concerned about is, yes, we do all this great stuff. We work. We're military partners. And then someone flips a switch uh, the Huawei network comes on and all of a sudden these are entire areas that are denied to us because they're um, from an, an intelligence standpoint, from a security standpoint, otherwise unsafe for us to be operating in with our you know, high level uh, equipment and, and technology. And so I do think we need to have some sort of answer for the partners about how we can, uh, if not compete, but you know, find ways to deconflict such that, yeah, if they want to go out and make deals with Beijing, they can. But there's got to be a way by which it doesn't you know, undermine or threaten our ability to work with them on the areas where they want to work with us. Right. And I want to color this kind of deconflict versus work together U.S.-China relationship with maybe two examples for listeners, maybe one being the Yemen, the war in Yemen, um, where you see the U.S. and China maybe being able to work together, maybe not, honestly, and then the other being just general oil interests from both places and um, OPEC. So maybe, I don't know if either of you want to start with maybe Yemen. Uh, yeah, I mean, binding off Yemen is, is going to be really hard. There are concentric circles of the Yemen problem, right? So you have uh, regional powers uh, that have both proxies and patrons in the country, uh, and they have serviced and provided lethal aid to those patrons UAE has done this. Saudi Arabia has done this uh, sometimes uh, at cross purposes, often at cross purposes. And then, of course, then you have the Houthis as well. Oftentimes, the Houthis have attacked some of those outside patrons because of their support to, you know, internal forces. And, you know, the context of, you know, the attack on Abu Dhabi last January uh, is that the Giants Brigade, uh, which is a Yemeni force, but it's from the south and largely supported by UAE, was now engaged in the fight in Marab along with the Republic of Yemen government forces against the Houthis. So that was a message, you know, get yourselves out of Yemen, you know, stop supporting these people. So say you can get to a place where the prisoner's dilemma of, okay, all of us are going to stop materially supporting some group in Yemen that supports our interests, if you get there, you then still have the problem of Yemen, which is incredibly divided uh, under the worst conditions uh, where there is really very little understanding or agreement on how to move forward in a way that then brings all of these constituent pieces together uh, where they can share resources, maintain their patronage networks, uh, and create a functioning stable country, uh, especially uh, where in the South you do have a movement of people uh, who have attempted to cede multiple times and in some cases in some you know history have have succeeded uh, and then of course now you have a very expansionist 
mentality among the Houthis who've seen their success and who want to rule the country. And you have a highly attrited, weakened central government in the midst of all that to say nothing of the fact what happens when you leave ungoverned space there in the South. And we have seen uh, al-Qaeda do things, you know, off from on one level, which is simply just to be there to the other level where they have attempted to project terror to the outside world using that, you know, ungoverned space as a as a launch pad. Uh, so it's, you know, incredibly messy inside and outside. So that is going to be really difficult. And when we think about this from a U.S. policy perspective, the answer can't just be coercing our partners uh, to stop doing things. There has to be a much more material vision for how we can secure that territory uh, in a way that simply gets everyone on the same page because it's ineffective. You know, everyone everyone wants the war to end. There's no one at this point who wants to see this continue. But how everyone can get their foot out of the bear trap is is really the hard piece. And we certainly have a role to play there. And how fair is the criticism um, coming maybe over the weekend, just this past Friday, about um, China being able to kind of broker some it looks like a ceasefire, maybe that they'll agree to, um, at least through the end of this year, but maybe longer. Um, the absence of potential absence of the U.S. in that deal and it following China's brokering of um, Iran and Saudi Arabia's normalization. I don't think there would be anything better if they were successful. I mean, right now, literally, there is. I mean, I'm sure Ukraine is probably, you know, unfortunately, uh, closely creeping up. But in terms of the per capita number of people who in the world who are food insecure, who don't have access to basic resources, I don't think any country holds a candle to Yemen. So putting aside you know, the global chess game of power and intrigue and who's got influence and who can do things, uh, if we want to actually elevate the priority, which is saving Yemeni lives, I'm rather agnostic uh, in terms of who, who can successfully negotiate what. If, if 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 China can play a role that's positive that helps end uh, the internal conflict between these partners that then allows uh, some reconstruction to take hold and Yemen to rebuild in a way that saves Yemenis and provides them a future that's better than this, yalla, let's go for it. Well, and I also think this really underscores the productive role China can really play in a, in a situation like this because the one thing that from my understanding of where the contours of this deal look like they're going to be, if we see the ceasefire become the contours of a permanent arrangement, which is often the case, whether, you know, by intent or by, you know, inertia, right? You see a ceasefire kind of draw the lines about how a conflict ends. It ends with the Houthis controlling a good chunk of, of Yemen mm-hmm. in a way that positions them to potentially launch rockets into Saudi Arabia, as we've seen them do in the past, and threaten maritime shipping and take other actions that have been a big legitimate security dilemma, if perhaps a self-created or self-aggravated one on the part of Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries involved in the Yemen conflict. The one thing China might be able to do is by putting pressure on Iran to limit the Houthis' ability to do that by limiting arms sales, limiting other forms of support they provide to the Houthis. The United States that's one element where the United States has been pretty actively engaged. They really have not played a direct role in the hostilities. There's been targeting support, refueling support, arms sales, controversial behaviors at different stripes of the conflict. One thing they have been more engaged on is trying to stop arms imports into Yemen because in part there's a UN Security Council regime that even predates the conflict that is supposed to be limiting those sorts of imports. 
And Iran hasn't really stopped Iran. Iran's been able to pull it off anyway. So it's not clear to me what the United States or the Gulf countries could really do to really hold Iran to account further if they started violating this. Pulling China into the picture actually changes the calculus for Iran a little bit. All of a sudden, you've got another actor who has a lot more political and economic levers that might be able to be used more effectively to curtail Iran's behavior. Again, the United States can't do that because we've got such a already heavily loaded relationship with Iran because of maximum sanctions, even though that's kind of, you know, was the last administration's priority, but heavy level of sanctions because of our long, difficult relationship. China adds a lot to that formula. So that way, it's a very productive addition. Um, and, I, and I hope people see it that way if it's willing to play that role. That role is not always cheap. It's not always easy. And I don't know if we've actually seen China be willing to do that. Because again, we didn't really see China make a huge effort to achieve these outcomes. I really think a lot of these are outcomes that are happening with China's role because Saudi Arabia has decided we're willing to take this step. And China is a convenient party to pull into the picture. We don't want to do it with the United States. The United States doesn't add as much. But, you know, did China drive these things to this outcome? I'm not sure they did. Maybe there's something happening behind the scenes we don't see, and they deserve more credit than I'm giving them. Um, but barring that, you know, the real moment of testing them will come later when the parameters of whatever potential peace arrangement get tested, and then to see what China does to keep them in place. That's exactly right. I mean, everything that has come to China thus far has really come to China, and it's all been good news. Like, what happens the day that China actually needs to enforce an agreement or otherwise try to compel its partners to keep the peace? Uh, I think the open question is, what does China want out of all this? Is it just an opportunity to sort of wave to the crowd and, and take a victory lap? Or is there actually uh, a real movement and shift such that they, they want to be involved in enforcing stability in this region, whether it's you know, for altruism's sake or because they, they actually now do see a vested interest in greater stability in the Middle East. So what should we look out for when it comes to oil and OPEC and the way that the U.S. and China will or will not kind of use this moment for um, the, the financial aspect of all of this? Well, you know, I would say I'm not sure China and the United States have wildly divergent interests in the oil domain as well. They're both energy importers, uh, major energy importers. And so they've got a shared interest in relatively low global prices. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is often on the other side of that. They want to get the maximum bang for their buck for the, you know, energy exports they produce. And that's particularly true because they see the end of their their role as the king petrol economy on the horizon. We don't know when, but at some point, some combination of the shift away from reliance on fossil fuels and declining supply of fossil fuels, although that's you know still a ways off at this point, will mean the end of their economic model. And they're trying to diversify in some very idiosyncratic ways, like crazy macro tourism and a variety of other sort of things they're building in, right? Um, with these big projects like Neom and things like that. The But I think the key point here is that they're on the opposite end of the equation with the other oil generating companies in OPEC. The one complicating factor is Russia and Ukraine, because Russia generally, I think, it's okay seeing higher prices. Um, you know, it diminishes the price between their pricing cap and the global global market. Um, it also means, more importantly, perhaps that so long as you know Russia's energy is not on the on the global market, and which would lower prices if it were being made more available, that means that it's just more costly for the West and European countries to engage economic behavior. And maybe China is more on board with Russia for the moment over the Ukraine conflict. But I think to paint what. Saudi Arabia and other OPEC members decided the past week or two about, you know, cutting production to keep oil prices high. 
That's just what OPEC does. I, I, I don't think that's uniquely in China's interest in any way. And while maybe it's more okay with the United States because of Ukraine and Russia right now, I, I suspect, you know, in a lot of other circumstances, they'd have a lot of the same reservations. Does that sound right to you, Jonathan? Yeah. No, I mean, ultimately, uh, MBS uh, and the Emirates particularly need to find a way to pay for all of this stuff. The, he's making huge capital investments throughout Saudi Arabia. It's incredibly expensive. And, you know, that transition, Vision 2030, all of these projects uh, require cash on hand. We're, we're, we're sort of at this point where I, I totally agree China and the U.S. want to see cheap energy. Uh, obviously, it's you know beneficial domestically uh, at the pump, but also it keeps the pressure uh, and limits the capacity of Russia and their activities in Ukraine if they can't generate re- revenue through through oil sales or as much revenue. Similarly, true, you know, there, there's this interesting little factor that sanctions on Iran has made Iranian oil, which is gray market oil at best, you know, incredibly cheap, and so actors have you know, been purchasing it at great, great discount. So the oil still finds a way to market. It's just at a price that, you know, really doesn't provide much uh, currency capacity to Iran uh, and still allows uh, there to be, you know, a a lot of world supply. And so this is sort of this game by which uh, we're all trying to keep the world supply uh, relatively high. Uh, But of course, the producers want to be able to extract uh, enough cash from it for, you know, their own interests. And so it's, you know, the, Scott's right. This, this isn't a fundamentally a new problem. This is just sort of a continuation, and there there are just new objectives for which uh, people want to use that cash, whether it's to fund a war in Ukraine or build Neom and other projects. This is the this is where we're at. So, I mean, I think we had a pretty balanced conversation, but I am cognizant that there's not like a specific China person here to maybe give more of China's point of view. So, just to maybe end off with maybe an ode to that idea, what would China need to do moving forward for um, maybe from the U.S. perspective or other perspectives to, to make it seem like they really are building their power in the region and like give more credence to what message they might want to be building across the world? Like what what would be an actual inflection point in in China's role in the region, do you think? Because they, they might say they've already done that a little bit, right? Um, and I mean, especially when it comes to Yemen, they, they will have said, look, this is something that we were, the, the thawing that we set off has led to this like really important moment. So what's a real metric for, for that? So we've seen China do this before. Uh, in the 1970s, you know, it was the first time China really pivoted to the Middle East and tried to build relationships with states there. Prior to that, during the kind of Cultural Revolution era, we saw China support uh, revolutionary movement in Yemen, a few other parts around the region that were highly controversial, particularly a point of tension with Saudi Arabia and other the kind of conservative status quo monarchies. And so when they wanted to try and really re-engage, China pursued a couple different fronts, trade relationship, economic relationships, very different then than now. But worth noting, you know, we can see elements of that already. Although, you know, Belt and Road, that kind of conventional approach, I don't think works as well in a lot of the Middle East, particularly the Gulf, because they're not short on cash. <laughs> they don't need a lot of investment financing, right? It's a very different sort of relationship. The second thing they did is that they really played on the fact that they were uh, a 
substantially Muslim nation. Um, you saw all of a sudden this kind of liberalization in interesting ways of China's own Muslim population and engagement between Chinese Muslim organizations and global Muslim organizations spearheaded by Saudi Arabia because of its role of having governance over Mecca and Medina and a central role it plays in a kind of global uh, Muslim community. That's a really hard move for China to pull off now because of the way it's treating its Uyghur and Muslim minority, right? Um, and has very well documented treating them horribly. That hasn't become the diplomatic issue it might be yet, um, in part because, frankly, Gulf countries have proven fairly overwilling, willing to overlook major human rights abuses. But I do think that sets real limits on the relationship at a certain point, in the same way that, frankly, you know, Israel's continued problematic and very difficult relationship and, and poor treatment of Palestinians is always going to be a major barrier and possibly a kind of recurring third rail in the Abraham Accord efforts and efforts to normalize with Israel, China, its treatment of its own Muslim minorities always is going to be that limiting factor. And that is going to pop up. And frankly, there are ways that the United States could and maybe should capitalize on that by pointing out that hypocrisy and really pushing, using the opportunity to push China on its own human rights record. Those are two big ones. The third one, though, that I would say Jonathan's already alluded to is that the United States built its relationship with a lot of Middle East countries, particularly the Gulf on security relationship. U.S. troops, and then it's U.S. hardware. And that hardware is, you know, a unique type of good, which in a way is people don't appreciate and that it comes with a strong tail. You, when you sell somebody a jet, you're not selling someone a jet, you're selling someone a 10-year relationship when they are, if not longer, where they're relying on you for parts, fuel, ammunition, maintenance, support, expertise, software upgrades, hardware upgrades, all the things that come to having that jet. The Gulf countries, and Saudi Arabia in particular, are still very much on that relationship. That is a, you know, dependency. When you see them seriously make an effort to get off of it, that's a sign that they're seriously realigning. Right now, the core parameters of the U.S. relationship are still in place, and and no one's appeared to be going somewhere. I guess security cooperation in terms of like intelligence sharing might be another one, but that appears to be very solidly in place. You know, uh, there's lots of other parts of the relationship that are important that might be compromised a little bit, but that's still the foundational aspect, I think. And so until you really see Saudi Arabia moving away from that, its core security function, its core national security elements, it's still putting all those chips in the U.S. basket. That is a hugely important point. And I think it's important uh, to note that right now, it isn't necessarily the Saudis or any Gulf partner is the one that's actively or has been actively looking to move away from U.S. security. I would say almost most recently it has. But you know, all the talk in Washington, how we need to be the partner of choice, we're the partner of choice. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, foreign military sales to most of these countries has fallen through the floor the last 10 years. And it's not because they don't want to buy it. It's because politically, we haven't wanted to sell it. Whether it was, you know, civilian casualties in Yemen as a part of uh, the Yemen conflict, you know, chopping up Jamal Khashoggi, other, you know, internal human rights concerns, Congress uh, has been otherwise very, very uh, reluctant to advance military sales at a level that it did in past decades. So much so that right now, what we saw in October was that when this OPEC decision uh, came out and it was adverse to Washington, both the White House and senior members of Cong Congress almost reflexively were, you know, throwing their hands up saying, why do we support them? Why do we do anything? You know, I thought the deal was, you know, security in exchange for oil. Uh, but from the pr perspective of these Gulf partners, uh, there hasn't been much, you know, security in the way of sales uh, forthcoming for quite some time. So uh, whether or not 
you know, the U.S. ultimately makes a decision whether it wants to embrace them. Uh, I think we need to have a, like an honest look at this dissonance in the messaging for what's actually happening. Uh, they've been not unclear about what they want from the West. They would like a security guarantee, uh, like along the lines of, you know, Article 5 NATO. And short of that, or in addition to that, they want to buy our stuff. Uh, now, what has happened most recently is that they're looking elsewhere. They've gone tired of waiting. Uh, and so, you know, we won't sell advanced UAV technology to many of these countries. Bicar, the Turkish company that got famous from the TB2 in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, and then, you know, in, in Ukraine, I think they're building three factories in the Gulf. You can't buy a TB2 for, you know, two or three years. I think there's a waiting list that long. So other countries will fill the gap. The question becomes, uh, what is our role here uh, if not to be the partner of choice? Uh, so again, if, if if we ultimately decide, no, we need to see this you know region through the lens strictly of human rights and no sales until we see tangible improvement on, on all things human rights, well, we should have an honest conversation about that and then change our strategy to reflect that that's what we're going to do. Because right now we have this dissonance between our policy and our politics, which is ultimately going to cause us to leave the strategy on the side of the road uh, if, if, if we can't you know square with ourselves what it is we want from this region. Right, of course, because we've always predicated our um, relationships on human rights and other moral things where China, of course, is not necessarily known to do that. Um, <laughs> so will Iran be at the Arab League meeting in May? Do you think it's going to happen? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I, I don't think so. You know, like t- to the point about what What's coming next? You know, again, like China has absolutely taken every opportunity to, you know, play the role of, you know, uh, you know, bell at the ball on the diplomatic scene. But, you know, the rubber is going to meet the road here the day that someone says, well, what are you going to enforce? Are you going to, you know, restrict uh, the flow of, uh, you know, economic goods across, you know, between China, you know, in, in Iran? Are you going to help the West enforce sanctions if various partners here are not meeting their obligations under your agreement. Uh, we haven't seen China have to play the bad guy uh, in this diplomatic role. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to watch. But uh, I, I, it's certainly, you know, they, they've bought off a, a lot. You know, I don't know if they're going to choke on all this because the Mideast is a really complicated place. And, you know, it's <laughs> to say, you know, blinding flash of the obvious. Well, I think we'll leave it at that then. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.